0: This is an ABC podcast. There, there is no other alternative for a Prime Minister than the rule of law. To Scott Morrison, stop dealing with this as a political problem and start doing the right thing. Not so much a tin ear as a wall of concrete. Having children doesn't guarantee a conscience.
1: Women who have put up with this rubbish and this crap for their entire lives. I've had
0: a gut for I have had an absolute gutful. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvelis from RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing, joining you from Wurundjeri Country.
2: And I'm Frank Kelly from RN Breakfast on the Gadigal land of the Ayora Nation. And soon we're going to be joined here in The Party Room, I'm happy to say, by The Guardian Australia's political reporter and blogger, Amy Ramikas. And we're going to be talking to Amy about something other than COVID, PK. So that'll be fun. Um, because, PK, this week the government held a two-day National Women's Safety Summit to lay the groundwork for what's called the next 10-year action plan to uh, eradicate violence against women and children. We're going to talk about that in a minute, which will you know, be interesting because that was another, you know, major major issue at the start. Well, it remains a major issue, but at the start of this year, it was a really dominating political debate. Since then, of course, it's been all COVID, and this week it's another stoush between the states, all about vaccine allocation. This time, sparked by Laura Tingle's story on seven thirty, uh, revealing that New South Wales received more than their per capita share of the Pfizer vac- vaccine from the Commonwealth. Um, turns out, in August, New South Wales received of the country's Pfizer allocation at that time, when New South Wales itself only accounts for about 32% of the population. So I think it's probably an understatement, PK, to say that the territories and states were not impressed, particularly the Victorian Premier, Dan Andrews.
1: I signed up to a national plan to vaccinate our nation, not a national plan to vaccinate Sydney. Now, some don't like to see this as a race, but a race it surely is. What I didn't know was that Premier Berejiklian's in a sprint while the rest of us are supposed to do some sort of egg and spoon thing.
2: That's a great spray from Dan Andrews. um, Before we bring you in, P.K., here's a response from the Federal Health Minister, Greg Hunt. Occasionally, I have the
0: sense that some people are looking for a fight. We're not. We want to work with everybody, constructively. As we've had outbreaks, we've prioritised those areas to save lives. Uh, In particular, we started by prioritising Victoria when there was the Victorian outbreak.
2: Okay, so Piquet, what is Dan Andrews so upset about? Is he upset that New South Wales got more vaccine share because it's had more of the infections with this latest Delta outbreak roaring through Sydney's western suburbs? That doesn't seem unreasonable to me. Or was he upset that this was somehow kept secret from the rest of the states, this uneven allocation?
0: I often say this in this podcast. I think column A and column B, Fran. But also I think what he did was that he... um, You know, he's talking to a domestic, domestic audience. And I said domestic twice on purpose. Victorians. (laughs) Very domestic. Victorians, right? Super domestic. (laughs) And he's sending a message to Victorians, which is very politically popular here, that parochialism, that we are being shortchanged. And it's working, let me tell you, because... On the second year of being in these never-ending, punishing lockdowns because of what feels like a really unfair distribution of virus that's hit our community and, you know, I'm Victorian-based, there is a sense of unfairness that, that, you know, the race isn't even or equal, that the the outbreak is seen as bigger in New South Wales at the moment. Last year, there was no vaccine, remember, Fran? So when Victorians went through that very long lockdown, there, there was just no... There was no light at the end of the tunnel other than zero. Now mm. zero with the Delta outbreak isn't the goal because it's too hard to get to realistically and also cat's out of the bag with this virus. So it's vaccination, right, and some some lim- limitations on, on the way we'll be operating. And if if the way out is hampered in any way and it, whether whether people are told about that because it's a bit sort of sneakily not shared, either way... I think that he's pressing the buttons of Victorians who think mm, that's just not fair. And I think it works. So it definitely works for him to make the point. Is he right? Well, I understand why um, you want to help those. Like it's like when there's bushfire, right? You want to you want to send your helicopters to the places where the fires is the, the yeah, greatest, so to exactly. speak. Yeah, right? I, I get the concept, but I'll say this. It's all very fine with Delta to say, oh, well, you know, um, it's worse over here until, of course, Delta starts spreading. Now, we're recording this on a Thursday morning. Victoria now has over 300 cases today. Um, it's not looking pretty, Uh I reckon that it's much of a muchness you need to vaccinate everyone and everyone fast everywhere and you can only do that if you do it fairly and
2: that's the fact and that's the truth but you can only do it you can only do it if you have the vaccine to do it so if meanwhile to use your bushfire analogy if you've got spot fires you need to send the hoses or the vaccine in this case to put out the spot fires and it goes to you know, vaccine supply, it's limited. It's still limited, even though it's about to get unlimited because we're getting all these doses finally. Um, There was, you know, actually only enough Pfizer supply to send off to Sydney in large amounts what they needed to try and curb that southwestern outbreak. And, you know, they're still struggling to do that. So that's the first thing, that if you've got limited supply, surely it makes sense to send it where the problem is. But this does raise another issue, I think, PK, which is that, you know, our government relied too heavily on AstraZeneca because we produce it here in Australia. It didn't order enough Pfizer. I think we'll probably maybe come to a discussion about that. Um, But the problem with that difference between AstraZeneca and Pfizer is the, is the waiting period between getting the two doses of each. And if Sydney got a lot of Pfizer, it means Sydney's going to reach the 70% double-dosed adult target more quickly because you're only waiting three weeks between doses, whereas Victoria has had to pump out AstraZeneca in the rollout because it hasn't had as much Pfizer, which means there'll be a longer wait between those first and second doses and a longer wait to get 70%. So I think that that's kind of a double whammy for Victoria. I think that was probably um, disturbing the Premier as well because, you know, it is a waste. We are in a race on this vaccine. And uh, at that rate, perhaps it was more of an egg and spoon thing. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a beautiful analogy, sorry. But, you, you know, think about it. It really did resonate, didn't it? That's why, you know, I snuck in the word zinger. I mean, it was... It was, I can't, it was actually a talking point in Victoria. Everyone was like, did you hear the egg and spoon line? <laughs> it was good, right? It was a good line because it resonated and it made the political point. And uh, Greg Hunt is right in so much as, you know, they want to fight. I think I think Dan Andrews was muscling up for a fight and there was politics in it, but it's also re- some reality in it as well. You do want the speed. And to give the Victorian Premier some um, credit, which I think he, he does deserve on this, he has been in in the last couple of months been saying the best vaccine you can get is anyone you can get in your arm right he Mm. has been a spruker of astrazeneca yeah um and that's why and yet it's to our detriment because of the lag as a state but his point is you know get your coverage don't shop for vax he's been actually really consistent and and i think that that needs to be noted because he hasn't been playing the same politics, for instance, that Queensland played.
2: And and talking for, you know, don't shop for vax, we got some news this week. Labor has been putting an FOI for some of the um, correspondence between the government and Pfizer trying to work out what is the truth of what happened last year when governments around the world were putting in orders for different vaccinations? Our government was pretty much banking on the domestically made AstraZeneca. But, you know, we did eventually put in at the end of the year an order for 10 million doses of, of Pfizer, as as we've been discussing a lot. That turned out not to be enough, not by a long shot. For many months last year, Labor and others were urging the government to hedge their bets, put in bo- orders for, you know, the Novavax for um, for Pfizer, just spread your bets a bit. The government didn't do that. And there's been all sorts of stories about why they didn't. Well, we got these FOI documents back, which indicate that back in June, so the middle of last year, very early on in all this, we didn't have the Pfizer vaccine or we didn't have an mRNA vaccine. We didn't know if it was going to work. But we got the news from Pfizer directly in correspondence to our health department saying, you know, the UK, the US are talking to us. They're putting in big orders. Why don't we have a meeting with your health minister? If he wants to, I can hook you up with the global leadership. I'm paraphrasing here, PK. Yes. Um, And, you know, can start talking to Australia about any orders you might want. That seemed to be what these letters reveal. Is that a fair depiction of it, PK? Yeah,
0: I think, I think it is. Now, the government has hit back. The Health Minister, Greg Hunt, says that those claims have been misrepresented. Uh, he said he, he did, however, confirm he didn't meet with Pfizer executives, but he says his office engaged with the pharmaceutical giant, right? That's the language he's using. Um, Anthony Albanese, I think, has rightly said, why don't you give us the rest of the correspondence then? You know, because that's what the government says. Oh, there's other correspondence. Well, okay, fess up. And I think that's fair enough. I think it does actually help Labor's case in making the point that the government was just not working hard enough at the highest levels to hedge its bets, right? That it was putting too much into into the AstraZeneca...
2: It It, it sort of plays into that slogan they have about Scott Morrison and his government, isn't it, which is too little, too late. That seems to be a theme Labor's been trying to build and they used it again in response to this because, you know, too little Pfizer, too late, and here they are brandishing these letters from Pfizer inviting the minister to come and speak with them, which he didn't do. He he didn't do that. And he confirmed that. There's no debate about that, right? And Pfizer signed separate vaccine agreements
0: with the UK and US governments in late July 2020 Australia didn't sign a formal deal until November 2020. That's a fact. And we know that the correspondent shows that they did want to, you know, spend some time with the health minister, which makes sense. Big pharmaceutical giant working on a very significant vaccine Mm -hmm. that could significantly assist us get out of this situation. And it didn't happen. So I think it looks very bad for the government. And I think not only do I think it looks bad for the government, I'm certain the government agrees privately that it looks bad for the government.
2: Yeah. I mean, yes, the best we could get from one government minister who was out and about this week immediately on the release of those letters. Wells, we haven't got the whole picture. And as you say, government, Labor Show says, us. OK, give us the whole picture and l- let's see what we can get out of that. I don't think they'll be doing that. Um, uh, PK, the um, COVID didn't dominate everything, as I mentioned at the start. Today, the party room, there was a major debate around the safety of women and girls in this country, and the statistics remain shocking. Those statistics of the number of women killed by a domestic partner every year, nothing seems to change. The number of call-outs our police have to domestic violence events every single day, nothing much seems to change. So there was this two-day summit, um, it's called the National Women's Safety Summit, to guide the development of the second national plan to reduce violence against women and children. Um, Australian of the Year, Grace Tame was there. There were critics of it. There were people who thought a lot came from it. Should we bring in our guests to have a talk about it? Yeah, let's do it.
0: <laughs> Amy Remikus is Guardian Australia's blogger and political reporter and general all-round fun good time girl.
2: Welcome to the party room. <laughs> Hello. What a welcome that was that title the guardian's political blogger i mean when i hear that i get sort of a traumatic response that must be such a <laughs> such a tough job anyway anyway we digress um Amy, this week we had the uh, National Women's Safety Summit in Canberra. Its whole job was to inform the second national plan to eliminate violence against women and girls. Um, well, I say el- eliminate or eradicate. In fact, it, it had big ambitions because it's gone from being a 10-year plan to prevent um violence against women and girls, to eradicate it. Now, this is surely a big idea. The summit itself, though, I think you were watching it pretty closely. It had its critics, Grace Tame, Australian of the Year, she was speaking at the summit, but she was also critical of those who weren't there. She said some of those with, you know, lived experience of violence, and also critical of the lack of focus on, on children and consent. What did you think of this event as it, as it rolled out. Amy, was it more than a talk fest? The government promised it wouldn't be just a talk fest. Was it more than a tick the box exercise given the pressure the Prime Minister in particular had been under earlier in the year on these issues?
1: Well, I think I think it wanted to be more than a talk fest, but the way that it was set up meant that it was always going to be doomed to fail. Because I mean, as you said, some of the criticism from Grace Tame and then also people like Thelma Schwartz were that there weren't enough of the people we needed to hear from uh, speaking or people had received last minute invitations to talk at it. Uh there, there were a lot of ministers there too, speaking about things that, you know, they want to make better and they could make better, they have the power to make it better, and we haven't seen that yet. It came on the heels of the Respect at Work report going through the Parliament, where we did not see the government go as far as it could have gone in actually legislating some of the things that they're talking about it. And we all want to see an end to violence against women, but how are you going to do that unless you're taking a holistic view that includes looking at things like mental health, uh, Mm -hmm. childcare, home. Homelessness, like income support, all of these little elements that make up the big picture that meet that end goal, we never hear enough about that and we're not hearing enough from the people who can tell us how to get there.
0: It was basically a talk fest, right? You're saying, you know what you say, Amy's right, you know, doomed to fail. It didn't fail. I don't think it's quite, fi- I, don't, no, I personally I don't think it, it, it failed. failed. But it couldn't do much either at this stage. No. But what it has done is that, the leaders, including the Prime Minister, the most kind of powerful of the leaders, they can't unhear what they heard very directly. It's the kind of thing that has to sort of elevate this issue and it puts enormous pressure on them, does it not? They can't hide now, right? You know, we (laughs) know the solutions have been put to them. Oh, well, you know, if you want women to leave their violent abusers, gee, they need somewhere to go. Oh, you might need to build them housing. Like it's really tangible stuff.
1: Yeah, but none of it's new either. Like This has been spoken about for years and years now. We hear about it every time there is a tragedy. We spent the first four months hearing about it and hearing from people saying, here are the solutions. And yes, to the government's credit, they have listened in some aspects. They've refunded crucial legal services. We're seeing a little bit more of an investment in some social housing areas, but we're not seeing that approach absolutely everywhere. And the the Prime Minister, when he gave an interview, I think it was on Sky News early this week, said that people needed to, you know, accept that the government had good intentions around this and they were doing their best. Well, that's not good enough. It hasn't been good enough for years. What, like, what has changed? Because I haven't seen a lot of change. Where we've heard from Brittany Higgins, we've heard from Grace Tame, we've heard from Indigenous and First Nations legal services, we've heard from communities, we've heard from grieving families, we've heard from victims, we've heard from survivors, but what has changed and what action has the government taken? Because I'm sorry, it doesn't seem to be enough and I'm sick of listening to the platitudes of we're going to get there. Well, there's a lot more you could be doing now. Why aren't you doing it?
2: But Amy, the truth too is though that nothing is ever going to be enough, is it? I mean, governments, Labor and Liberal have been confronted with these statistics, which really don't seem to get much better as the years go by uh, for as long as I've been re- reporting on politics. And that's you know coming on for a couple of decades now. We've had Campaigns after campaigns, we've had you know, spending envelopes, we've had the money increased, we've had legal services increased. Perhaps it's something more fundamental than that, which is, you know, what... I mean, Scott Morrison was criticised for being the keynote speaker at this Women's Safety Summit, um, but within his address, he was trying to finger, I think, um, what is perhaps essentially the underlying problem here, which is something bigger than governments. Let's hear.
1: We need to change behaviours and attitudes, so that we stop violence before it starts. Our country must become a place where every woman feels safe and can live free of fear. That's what freedom is. That's every woman's right, but it's far from every woman's reality, as we know.
2: We need to change behaviours and attitudes. He went on to talk uh, directly to men saying, men, you have to understand you can't control women. And then he went on to talk about you know, coercive control. I mean, a government by itself can't change behaviours and attitudes, can it?
1: No, it can't, but it can also, you know, be a starting off point because I'm not sure whether we have seen those things the Prime Minister was talking about uh, in his own government or his own ministry. I'm not sure if we have seen people being held to account or or asked to explain themselves adequately or…
2: Exactly.
1: We haven't seen that. We we haven't. Uh, And we have, you know, some very prominent examples sitting in that parliament where we haven't had somebody being asked to explain themselves, be investigated, have their actions called to account. We've been told there is nothing we can do here. We've been told that over and over and over again. Uh, It's just... It seems to be constant. And then we get told, oh, we need to change. Well, where is the change starting from? Mm -hmm. And you're right. We can have all of these campaigns, you know, you need to stop it at the start. We need to start addressing this with children, with our own attitudes and barbecues. But we also need to address what's happening in the parliament. And I don't think we're seeing enough of that.
0: So there are some tangible proposals that have been put to the government, right? Uh, For instance, the target of not just reducing domestic violence, uh, but, you know, reducing it by something measurable like 80%. I spoke to Anne Ruston, the minister, and she said she wants to go further, uh, you know, end it basically 100% by 2031 or so to speak. Great that she wants to. Let's see how you make it measurable, though. What does that look like? And then we have some really clear ideas about how to do it. So one thing, Kate Colvin from Everybody's Home campaign has been pushing this, this point based on research they've done that affordable housing is a really crucial element when it comes to domestic and family violence. Now, there's pressure on Scott Morrison from domestic violence and homelessness groups to do that work. I mean, is it feasible, Amy, that they can get to the next budget and not give a huge commitment on that sort of program given the rhetoric they're using now?
1: Well, you would think it wouldn't be, but it really comes down to whether this is going to be about politics or whether this is going to be about actual action. Because the idea that, you know, you need affordable housing so people have somewhere to go, again, is not new. Like, this is something that has been spoken about for decades. Uh, This is something that was spoken about at the last election as well, like we need actual housing solutions, you know, not just to address violence, but to address a whole heap of issues that are within our society. And we keep getting told that this is a state issue, Um, you know, Tasmania is probably one of the most recent examples where that issue sort of blew up and became something that they absolutely had to address. And that was a political reason, you know, in the end with that one as well. So I think that you would hope that they're going to follow through on the budget. That is going to depend, I think, on pressure that comes from the electorate and from people themselves where they continue doing this. But it's not it's not new. People want tangible solutions. Housing is a very obvious one.
2: Yeah, it's not new and I think the signs aren't good. As you say, this is a known issue. We've been talking about this for decades. We also know the price tag is expensive for social housing. The statistics or the approximations I saw this week is anything between an extra five billion a year to an extra 17 billion. So it's a lot of money. And of course, the government has just spent so much money during this pandemic to try and you know, keep the economy from going completely bust and, and millions of Australians out of work. The debt's already been racked up. I don't know that in the next budget, there's going to be many, many, many more billions being thrown about.
1: Yeah, I and I, you know, have to agree with you because I think a lot of the way that we've heard about the budget and the debt is it's been quite cynical. I mean, we're probably going to start hearing a lot about how we need to start reining in spending soon, yeah. or we have to control the ballooning debt. So you're starting to hear that come out, you know, from parts of the backbench and different elements of the party room and stuff already. Um, and yes, social housing might seem expensive because the bill is due pretty much immediately, but We have spent so much money on support services that haven't done anything and campaigns and all the rest of it. Whereas if you provide people with the basics, somewhere to live and a way to earn money, people can rebuild their lives. We know that. We know that that works. If you give somebody a way out or a way where they can know that they're going to be safe and that their children are going to have a roof over their heads, people are more willing to take that step to free themselves from the situation that they're in. And that you can't, that we have a government that perhaps cannot see that that solution is one that is staring them in the face, I think is, is a real, real travesty. Because if we don't do it now, when we're all talking about this, when do we do it?
0: Yeah, no, when it's when it's at the most sort of crisis point in terms of the conversation and still it's not being done, you mm-hmm. do wonder, right? I, I know exactly what <laughs> you How are we still mean?
1: talking about it and don't actually have a national plan to increase social housing? It just, it makes no sense to me.
0: No. Look, I want to change the the topic, if I can, um, to another really significant story this week, I think. Scott Morrison is under fire for accepting uh, exemptions to fly from Canberra to Sydney for a Father's Day trip to see his family. Now, he flew in a private jet on the taxpayer's dime. And, OK, fair enough. He's running the country. um, Time is tight. Everyone deserves time, I suppose, to see their family. I'd like to see my family whenever I can. It's it's a normal... uh, Desire, but the the fact that he got an exemption and suddenly needed to go back to Canberra the next day uh, when he was kind of meant to go to Sydney, I think to to be there longer, and then he came back to Canberra, and it's and then it's, he shared on his social media, and this is key, right? He shared on his social media a Father's Day picture but said that it was, you know, from from several months ago, a picture taken earlier. But it appears he was actually with his family at the time. Now, didn't say he wasn't with his family, but it was a bit of smoke and mirrors, wasn't it, Amy?
1: Oh, it absolutely was smoke and mirrors. I mean, the only time I put up throwbacks is when they're an actual throwback photo (laughs) and it's somewhere that I wish I was. So here's me sipping cocktails on a beach. Like, you know, I'm sitting in Canberra right now, but you look at my Instagram and it's full of photos of when I actually had a life and I was doing fun things and being around the people that I love. Everyone would love to be with their families at the moment. Not everyone has received, you know, those exemptions or that special treatment. And I think it is, it's, it's never never—it's never the crime, it's always the attempt at the cover-up. And I think that photo, which was taken at a memorial for children who had died as well, which is, mm. it's another layer to this, I think, for, for a lot of people. And it acknowledges in the caption that that was, you know, that day, he realized more than others that how important family and his and his kids are so he was acknowledging you know the context of the photo and also that it was an older photo but putting up an older photo combined with the fact that he stayed very quiet about where he had travelled, I think is is what has people upset. It's not that he saw his family, it's that he tried to cover it up and people can't see their family. This happened on the same day too that Peter Dutton was criticizing the Queensland government for the scenes at the southern border where you had people on the tweed trying to meet through Persplex with people, you know, on the Queensland side of the border. He was saying this is a disgrace. We need to reunite families. So why does the Prime Minister get to use special exemptions that are awarded to him as an essential worker in Canberra as part of the parliament and the leader of this country to see his family for a weekend
2: and nobody else can. He could have just waited four days stayed in Canberra after Parliament last week and then flown home and stayed in Sydney for a while and that would have been perfectly within the rules he would have been with the family for a long time wouldn't have attracted any of this attention but I think he was banking on it not attracting attention like you say it's always the cover-up I was a bit um, interested Amy in this the labor response to this former labor leader Bill shorten was first off the blocks on channel 9 he said it's not that Scott Morrison doesn't deserve to see his kids but so does every other Australian he can't have one rule for Mr. Morrison, one rule for everyone else. I think it's appalling judgment. And then you had the Labour leader, Anthony Albanese, saying, I've got a lot of criticisms of Scott Morrison, but wanting to see his family is not one of them. I mean the question I suppose is, where do you think the Australian population falls on this? And and second secondly, what's going on within Labour? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, what's going on with Labour? How much time do you have? Um, <laughs> I think Anthony Albanese has got a a long-standing tradition of not criticising people when it comes to their family matters with with politicians. He's kind of always stuck to that Mm. line. Um, And there was a a part in in Nikki Sava's column today where, you know, she mentioned that, you know, that was checked before um, Scott Morrison did some of his interviews as well, that that tradition was standing. And then it it came out to the media that Anthony Albanese was not going to criticise Scott Morrison on this, but, you know, other members of Labor had. So, I think part of that is, you know, Anthony Albanese's own personal value system where he doesn't criticise people over their families. Also, part of it is pure politics where you don't have the leader making the negative attacks because nobody Mm -hmm. wants to be seen as too negative. But I think this particular issue at this particular time People are criticising it, again, not because he saw his family, but because he got special permission to do so. And it's not the first time. When he went to the G7, he got to do a side trip where he went and visited, you know, family history sites and got a bit of a tour about his family ancestry and went to pubs and those sorts of things when people haven't been able to travel for 18 months and see their families, you know, either come into the country or go back out again. Like, it's not the first time we have seen Poor judgment, and then seen the you know the explanation be or like, well, I didn't actually break any rules, and anyone who's accusing me of anything is actually just being cynical. It's not being cynical if we're all in this together. We're supposed to all be in this together, which means we're all making sacrifices.
0: Mm. Yeah, and on those sacrifices, I just want to just end this conversation, if we can, on. Um, what's going to happen in New South Wales as we're recording? The news is officially broken that New South Wales's lockdown will be lifted for fully vaccinated adults from the Monday after the state passes the seventy percent double vaccination target. This is very significant. From that time, fully vaccinated adults and those with medical exemptions will have more freedoms. For instance, five visitors to the home and not including children under 12. I'm just giving some examples. 20 people gathering outdoors, hospitality venues, you know, they're reopening. So it's a reopening plan, a proper reopening plan. Um, this, on the same day, the state's recording 1,405 new COVID-19 cases. And we know the trajectory is not good for the COVID cases. It's pretty significant and it has a huge Implication on the rest of the country, and we know, don't we,
2: Fran? We were talking about this earlier that the advice they got. What well, was it, Fran? It was really Kerry one of them. Chant, the chief health officer, had apparently reportedly been urging them to hold off until they got to over eighty percent of double vaccinated before they did the complete opening up. Um, I mean, still with restrictions, I think, but the opening up. But if any suburb or local government area has an outbreak then or gets high numbers again, then there might be some restriction of movements for those. So it'll be targeted lockdowns by the looks of it. Um, Amy, what do you think this does to the national picture and the positions of other states? Is that going to put pressure on other state and territory leaders to, you know, to get cracking and open things up more?
1: Well, I mean, like the the states that everyone is is criticizing, people are living free there. You can go to the pub yeah, in, you know, true. Queensland, WA, South Australia, Northern Territory, you know, um, and until recently, the ACT, uh, you you can you can meet with friends. You know, life is continuing. I look at what's happening in Queensland, and I'm just like, you know, is COVID even an issue still there? Because there's no masks, and everyone's you know happy. They do need to get cracking on vaccination, and and we're seeing that in. In South Australia and Tasmania, and we're starting to see that were, we're up in uh, in Queensland and Western Australia as well. And I think the issue with what is happening in New South Wales. And they've always been pushing to open up uh, as quickly as possible is there is going to be more questions over are they doing it against the health advice, um, as you say, like why is Kerry Chant provided this advice uh, if, if the government's not the, going to the, listen
2: to it? Especially since acting according to the health advice has always been the armour of government, state and federal, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, and Gladys Berejiklian has made a very big point of saying that they've always followed the health advice. So what has changed in this moment where they're saying, okay, no, we're going to do the letter of like the Doherty Institute report and we're just going to open up for vaccinated uh, people at at 70%. But the other issue is that uh, Australians do need to make that mindset switch because we have been... told for the last 18 months, low COVID numbers is what we're after. We're trying to aggressively suppress the the virus. And suddenly, we're going to see high numbers, not just in cases, but in our hospital, because Mm. the New South Wales opening coincides when, when we know that the hospital system is going to come under the most pressure. We're going to see more deaths. We're going to see more people get sick. We're going to see more impacts of long COVID. We're going to see more children start to get are sick. So we're going to have to make a huge shift in the way that we've dealt with COVID in Australia. And that is going to be the change that people have to make in their mind. And New South Wales is sort of going to be the test for that. I don't think it's going to mean that the, the lockout states are going to suddenly throw open their borders because people are quite happy living as they are at the moment without the fear of COVID. It will eventually come to those states, but I think they want to try and hold that off for as long as possible.
2: All that I think is true, and and you're right. It'll be like a live experiment. The rest of the country will be watching about when you do open up. H- how does it let rip? And that will be frightening, I think, to watch. But it also might put pressure on individuals to uh, move more quickly to get vaccinated. Those who might be reluctant, who might be a bit hesitant still, to get vaccinated. Mm, absolutely. And I mean, like now that we actually have the supply issues of the mRNA
1: vaccines under control, uh, that will become easier in states where we. We have seen some of that hesitancy because of the discussion that's been around certain vaccines and those sorts of things. But I, I think it's going to be a really scary time for a lot of Australians to kind of adapt to because it, they're just not scenes that we have seen. And everyone wants to get together and everyone wants to, you know, be able to see their friends and family and travel and start living their lives again. But when they say that it's safe we also have to remember it's not safe for everyone. And that that is something that we have to learn to accept because it's going to become blatantly obvious.
0: Yeah, look, you know, we're in really genuinely uncharted territory now in Australia. You know, this is a genuinely quite bold reopening plan. It is not without risks, as you will hear. Listen to RN Breakfast, listen to RN Drive in the meantime. Of course, read everything that Amy writes. And thank you, Amy, for coming on our podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. See you, Amy.
2: Questions without notice, the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you. And, and I'm
0: pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Yeah, yeah. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time and Parliament's not sitting this week. So this is the only question time you're going to get on a national level. This week's question comes from Bridget, who writes, I just got an unsolicited anti-vax text message from Craig Kelly. And for those who don't know, he's an MP. I clicked the link. And if you didn't understand how to read that data, it would seem quite scary. Given that the government is now telling us vaccines are the only way out of this mess, how can they sit idly by and let rogue ministers like Craig undermine their messaging? Just one thing. He's not a minister. Um, uh, he's an MP. He's member of parliament sitting now on the crossbench. But yeah,
2: Fran, how can they? Well, how can they? Indeed, I mean, I think you nailed it there. He's not a member of the government anymore. He took himself to the crossbench. He's now joined the United Australia Party, which is Clive Palmer's party. We saw how Clive Palmer behaved at the last election, spending what somewhere between sixty and eighty million dollars of his own money uh, for advertising that basically was scaremongering around Labor's policies. Didn't end up getting any United Party. Um, United Australia Party MPs elected, all he did really was focus criticism on Labor. Labor certainly believed that contributed majorly to their defeat, their significant defeat in Queensland in particular. So Craig Kelly is there, which means he'll be backed by Clive Palmer's war chest. Clive Palmer has already tried to go to the High Court once or has gone to the High Court to try and get lockdowns made a thing of the past. He doesn't like them. That's probably a personal politic thing as much as it also perhaps interferes with his business um, dealings. Um, so we know where Clive Palmer stands on this. Craig Kelly is is leaping more and more into this space. I mean, when he was a member of the Liberal Party, he kept saying he wasn't an anti-vaxxer. I think he's getting closer and closer to ha- fitting that definition. I actually tried to look at that data, <laughs> Bridget. I couldn't really understand it, but it was basically all about um, accounting, suggesting that these are the net number of negative effects from being vaccinated. Um, So it is quite frightening for people who are nervous about getting vaccinated. It is a message that undermines the the national push for vaccination. You know, Craig Kelly, I guess, is is standing for election, not with a major party. He'll be running uh, in his home electorate. Is there support in that electorate for this kind of belief? I doubt that there will be. I doubt he'll get elected, but you never know.
0: Look, I doubt it too, but yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, who knows what will happen by the time the election happens. Keep sending your questions in because we do love getting them and you can tweet using the hashtag ThePartyRoom or email your questions to ThePartyRoom at abc.net.au.
2: And remember, follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app or on your favourite podcast app. That's it for The Party Room this week. We'll see you next week. Hey, see you, PK.
0: See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC
2: podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.